Welcome to Shelf Logic, Hello, the official Kim, podcast of the Maricopa County Library Lynn. District. And today we're going to talk about some books that we've read that are historical fiction. We both like historical fiction books. Lynn, what, what do you like about, what kinds of historical fiction do you like? Um, I like pretty much all kinds of historical fiction. I've read a lot of World War II historical fiction with the book club. But I do like historical fiction from different times. And I love a book that makes me think, wow, I never knew that. That is so fascinating. And sometimes with historical fiction, you really feel that way. Like, I can't believe what these people went through or, wow, I I never knew that before. And so that's what I like about historical fiction. Yes, I also like historical fiction. And the thing I like about it is that it can really put you, you, if you read history, you get the facts and you know what's going on. But when you read historical fiction, you get the feeling of what were they really going through? What were their struggles mm-hmm. and their frustrations? And you can feel it more intensely, I think, than in just reading a history book. Yeah, and I would say when I am reading historical fiction, I want a book that the author has done some research, but I don't want it to be as if I was reading research. You want that story as along with the research when you read it. So the titles I have today are mostly older titles um, that we have several that we've read in the book club, but I still feel they're for fascinating glimpses into the past. Yeah, that that's really good. And that's something, historical fiction can take a, a wide range of books. I always like it when they, they intertwine real people real historical figures and then meld in some mm-hmm. fictional characters just to give it a little bit of depth and mm-hmm. and um, but I love always reading the epilogue in the books in historical fiction books because you always find out facts or details that you didn't know before right and it's it's always a little bit amazing sometimes when I read historical fiction I'll be like oh that's Get, that's so phony it couldn't have happened and then I read in the back where no those were the facts that really did happen right and it's a little bit surprising yeah all right so the most recent um historical fiction book that I read is called the Lindbergh Nanny and it's written by Mariah Fredericks and this story um is about Charles Lindbergh um who was a famous pilot He was the one who made the first solo transatlantic flight in 1927, and he was very famous, rich, and popular um, once he had done that. He was kind of like a rock star now. People really were interested in him. So he's living um, with fame and fortune, and he's um, with his wife and his young son, who is also named Charles Lindbergh, Um, and... He, he, Charles Lindbergh really was not a very nice man. I, I guess always I thought of Charles Lindbergh as just being rich and famous and handsome and, and right. kind of nice. I, I was talking to you about how I had read his wife wrote a book called Gift, Gifts from the Sea in Marl Lindbergh. And I always thought they had a happy marriage. And then a couple years ago, I found out that no... Um, he had actually had affairs with a couple of women in Germany and that when their baby was kidnapped and after they he died, 
he would not let her cry in front of him about losing her child, which I just thought was terrible. Yeah, he was a very strict, stern man, and I think he ruled the roost in that house, and everyone jumped to do what he did. This book um, is from the perspective of the nanny, who was just a young girl, and she really didn't have any experience being a nanny, which is kind of surprising when Mm -hmm. you're doing it for someone rich and famous. But the reason that she got the job was because she was willing to do exactly what Charles Lindbergh wanted, which was a very odd um, way of raising his child. But he was adamant that little Charlie was going to be um, independent and self-sufficient, so even though he wasn't a, even a year old, he would not let um, either Anne or Betty, the, the nanny, uh, coddle Charles in any way. Um, he, would, he would put the baby, he would have them put the baby in the crib for hours on end. And in fact, he even created a pen made out of chicken wire outside that he would put the baby in and just let him stay there and not let anyone be around just the baby by himself outside for hours and hours and if he cried he wanted him to to figure out how to soothe himself and figure out his own his own problems so it was a pretty odd and disturbing way to raise a child (laughs) yes (laughs) but that's why betty got the job because she in her interview said that she would do whatever the you know she would raise this son however the parents parents wanted to wanted her to and so wasn't she implicated in the kidnapping in the beginning she was in fact let's go back just a little bit because maybe not everyone knows about the kidnapping so um there was a kidnapping of the baby on March 1st of 1932. Um, some kidnappers climbed climbed up a ladder to, to the second story of the house and entered the nursery when the baby was sleeping. They stole the baby and they left a ransom note demanding $50,000. And about um, 10 p.m., Betty Gao, who was the nanny, discovered that he was missing. So this this book really tells her story both before and after the kidnapping. And I think it's hard for us today to fathom what a big deal this was. It was huge news at that time. It was. This baby was um, protected as well, and they wouldn't let him have pictures taken and things like that, but the public was so interested in this baby and always wanting to... S- get get pictures just like now with the paparazzi they were always trying to get pictures um and it was it was always a a problem with the staff of people coming to the door and trying Mm -hmm. to get in and trying to wheedle their way places um and so it was kind of a common occurrence that people would come by and there were more there was more than one scare where Betty thought that something had happened to Charlie, and now finally it really did happen. And yes, she was the one who was first suspected of um, being part of the kidnapping. However, it was it was later determined that she had nothing to do with it. Um, so um, she also had a boyfriend who I think they never completely cleared that mm-hmm. possibly the boyfriend was the one who had done done the kidnapping. Um, 
I know there's still a bit of a little bit of mystery surrounding who kidnapped the baby and what happened um, to the child. So yeah, and for a while, Charles Lindbergh was suspected of it too. He was a um, he was a Hitler um, enthusiast, and he w- believed in eugenics. And there was some talk that maybe the baby was not as perfect as he wanted him to be and maybe he had a part in it I think that's kind of been um, set aside and and that maybe it's a little more probable that it was Betty's Mm -hmm. boyfriend Um, but her life was really ruined through this whole thing as you can imagine she um, she loved that baby and she took care of him as if he was her own Uh, there were times when as I said, Charles would would uh, make all the the rules for the family, and one thing he insisted on was that his wife knew how to fly and did a lot of independent things, and he insisted that she go on a two-month trip right before this happened. So she was away from the baby for like two months, and then when she came back, um, the baby was sick, so they didn't want the baby to come come into town so the baby was staying at another house and Betty was there caring so it was months that she was just like Mm -hmm. the baby's mother so she was she was obviously um distraught because she loved the baby she was distraught because she was now lost her job and her means of taking care of herself and her reputation and her reputation exactly because who would hire her exactly as a nanny again right yeah yeah so anyway, this was an interesting peek into an odd life of a famous family, and it's an interesting glimpse into a life of a very multifaceted woman just trying to make her way in the world, and mm-hmm. and uh, I would recommend that you read it. Oh, sounds good. All right, I was going to talk a little bit about the book The Kitchen Front by Jennifer Ryan, and this book takes place on the British home front during World War II and is talking about the food rations at that time. So a typical person's weekly food ration in Britain was one egg, two ounces of tea, two ounces of butter, an ounce of cheese, which I think I eat that every day. Yeah, really, that's nothing. Eight ounces of sugar, four ounces of bacon, and four ounces of margarine. And meat wasn't immediately rationed, but, Later on, it went by point value of what you could get. And so you can imagine that the wives in Britain were working creatively to try and supplement this diet because who could you feed on this for a week? Yeah, you couldn't. Nobody. I think we all kind of experienced a (laughs) tiny piece of that during COVID when when there was no food on the shelves and you weren't allowed to go get it anyway. But this is a story um, set in the country of of England. And at that time, the BBC had a TV show that was called The Kitchen Front, where they would give advice to housewives on how to stretch their diets. Everybody was encouraged to dig up their front yards, to plant gardens for victory. And so fruits and vegetables were not rationed, but there were certain things that were hard to get in England. Like, I, I think they said onions were hard to get, which... Really? seems crazy to me but so this is about the these four women one of them is 
um, Audrey, and Audrey is a war widow, and she has growing teenage sons, and she also has a side business where she tries to do baking. So she'll use honey or whatever she has, jam, to try and supplement what she's making. Was she a baker before or just during um, this? No, she sure. cooked for her family, but this is a way that she can kind of make make pies and earn some money on the side. Okay. And she is just frazzled. The house is falling down around her. She is trying to keep body and soul together. Okay. Her sister Gwendolyn has married a businessman and lives in the manor. And so she has more money. In fact, I, the black market is definitely involved in their family because they have no problems getting lovely food for the table. <laughs> and there's also Nell, who's um, the maid for her sister Gwendolyn, a young girl. And there's Zelda Dupont, who's supposed to be French, but is not. <laughs> and she has another secret of her own. So... The Kitchen Front is running a contest where they're going to have a female co-host for the Kitchen Front. And this was a real radio show at the time. So in this area, they're having this contest, and all four women apply to be contestants. And the book is broken down into the three different sections of the contest. And it's really about their friendship, how they all unintentionally really come together and at the end of the book form this really beautiful kind of friendship out of what they're doing and also just the unbelievableness of what they went through I mean Audrey has starts to raise chickens so she can have eggs they have at that time people would go together and buy a pig and raise the pig and because you were raising it that wasn't considered rations and then you would butcher the pig and you would get so people had ways that they were trying to do go around what they could eat Nell does some foraging in the woods I think Audrey does as well to get mushrooms or fiddleheads or whatever you could find to kind of supplement what you're eating and then again of course the black market plays a part in it as well and interestingly, you didn't have to use your ration book when you went to a restaurant. Oh. Yeah, it was very interesting. The government did set prices in the restaurants and prices for what they could get. But if you were like a single woman or man, like maybe I was working making munitions, I didn't have time to cook for myself, I could go to a restaurant and get a, a quick meal. Now the food was not wonderful but that's what you could have and the foods that they were trying to eat were just crazy like at one point the ministry of food was trying to promote eating whale meat Ooh, i know but they had lots of it so they're trying to find recipes they used potatoes in a lot of different ways they had bread with made not just from flour but with other things as well seeds sometimes sawdust and but interestingly sawdust i know Interestingly, they did say that for 10 years after the war, the British people were the healthiest they had ever been from all the fruits and vegetables (laughs) that they were eating. Because you would make a pie if you didn't have meat. You would cheat everything out with vegetables. Okay. So you ate a lot of vegetables. And the author does include recipes in the book. Some of them are inspired by her grandmother, recipes her grandmother had. Did you try any of them? No, we didn't try any of the recipes. 
But we did read it for book club, and the ladies uh, did enjoy reading it. We were all, again, just amazed at what they had gone through to try and... You can imagine if you had teenage boys trying to feed them. Yes, and being a widow on top of it, or your husband away at war, if not a widow. And the author really does, with Audrey, you feel the sense of, like, she just is hanging on by a thread. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Trying to hold it all together, trying to keep the house, the house is falling apart, keep the house together, keep her sons together, you know. Sounds like a good book. Mm -hmm. It was a very good, a different look at World War II and what was happening on the home front. Yeah, and you don't really think of the hardships that the British went through, and they really did. And again, all the clever ways of trying to supplement your diet and what you could get. Makes you realize how spoiled like we, we are. are now. Actually, people today are having chickens because of the price That's of eggs. True. So we we're saying <laughs> there are some similarities to today. That's true. <laughs> and raising pigs. <laughs> That's true. So the next book that I chose to talk about, we have both read. Mm-hmm. And that one is The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein. Um, I neglected to say in in the Lindbergh Nanny that that book is available both on Hoopla and Libby. How about oh, yeah. the Home Front? The Kitchen Home Front is available on Libby as an ebook and as an e audio book. And I think I listened to the audio book. It was quite good. Okay. Yeah. Nice. All right. So going forward to the Exiles, which we both read. Um, and this book is really the story of Australia uh, during the, its colonization in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s. Well, I think it's actually Tasmania. Well, Tasmania, yes, you're right. Yeah. It is Tasmania. And they called it um, Van, Van Diemen's Land. Mm-hmm. So that's how it's referred to in, in the book. Um, so what did you think of this book? Do, would you say you liked it or... I did enjoy it, and it was interesting to me. Like you read a, you, I've read books about English history, and they'll talk about people being sent off to the colonies, but this was a look at what that was like, and that you could be sent to the colonies for something. Like one of our characters steals a silver spoon, and she's sent to the colonies. So just for the littlest offense you could be imprisoned and then sent and our characters though I think they would see it as maybe better than being in the prison because when they talk about what life was like in I think she goes to Newgate prison Evangelina our main character um, that they're all crowded together and I would also think how boring it would be like I think one of the hardest things in prison would be the boredom that you're have nothing, nothing to, to do. do. Yeah, because they didn't even get like yard time. I don't think they really, and they were barely clothed or fed. And they do get visited in prison by a ph- philanthropist, and she is based on a real person who came and gave them like I think stitching to do that they could do sewing in the prison. Yes, and. Or maybe it was knitting. I can't. Sorry, I, I can't remember. Someone. I think it was some. <laughs> but it gave them something to do. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So let's just start by kind of talking about the main characters in here. There were quite a few main characters. So Evangeline was the first one. Um, I. She was in the beginning probably the main character. I would say, mm-hmm. and she starts out as a young, very naive governess uh, to a 
wealthy family and she gets seduced by the spoiled son of her employer and through a series of very unsophisticated blunders on her part um, she ends up both pregnant and in jail Mm -hmm. which is horrifying so uh, after months in prison she's finally sent to this van diemen's land which is now known as tasmania Um, while she's in prison she meets another woman named olive who's very tough and very hard and she's lived a hard life and she is anything but naive, <laughs> which is good for Evangeline to befriend her because she really helps her navigate mm-hmm. her time in the prison and even um, on the ship because it, it, that was also really hard, really difficult, mm-hmm. um, just mistreatment and um, obviously no rights to these people. They were treated very subhumanly I would say yes so sorry there's our school bell (laughs) (laughs) and Hazel is injured by a brutish sailor so Evangeline starts to watch out for her and kind of kind Mm -hmm. of takes on the role of her protector Um, Hazel This is a character I feel very sorry for because she was pushed into pickpocketing by her mother, Mm -hmm. um, and but she wasn't good at it, and she didn't like it, um, and so she kept getting caught. So the third time she got caught, the judge had had enough, and he sentenced her to seven years in Australia. Could you imagine nowadays if you got caught stealing three times and you were under 18 and Mm -hmm. sent by yourself? To another country <laughs> that was really not well formed. <laughs> but Hazel has her mother was a midwife, so Hazel has midwifery skills, and yes. also has skills with herbs. Yeah, she was an herbalist, and I believe that the surgeon on the transport ship falls a little bit in love with Evangeline. Yes, and so he offers Evangeline and Hazel protection while they're on the ship yes but he also does not believe in all of this herbal remedies no he doesn't he's a he's absolutely a man of science not Mm -hmm. tradition and there's a fourth woman in the story who really has nothing to do with the other three the other three are intertwined throughout the story and the fourth woman well i should say girl is um kind of stands alone but um, she's an important part in this story, and she is not a fictional character. Um, she was a real, real mm-hmm. person, and her name is Mathena. And there's not a lot that's known about Mathena, except that she, she was Aboriginal, and she was. Uh, her mother died when she was like six, and then her father died, I think, shortly after that. So she was an orphan. And the governor's wife, Jane Franklin, took an interest in her and decided to do this project with her, which I also can't imagine. But she took her from her home and had her live in the governor's mansion with her. And she really tried to enculturate her into the British culture. culture. And she dressed her in in the clothing, and she tried to teach her to read and write. Um, and I think the book did a good job of 
showing both how the girl did not want to go, but also that there were things that she did like about it. You know, she was obviously now fed, and, you know, there were... Well, it was hard because they were... The Aboriginal people at that time were losing their way of life and losing the land that they had. So even if she went back to her people, and I later in the book she does try to go back, but there's really no family for her there or uh, nothing for her to do in that area. So even if she had wanted, she, she couldn't. couldn't. Yeah, it shows how how terrible this woman is because eventually the woman just basically gets bored of her and, they and just her. sends her yeah. back to an orphanage, um, an orphan school, and they leave. They go back to England and never contact her again. And so she's pulled from her from her roots and her structure into this placed into this completely different world and then she wasn't even sent back there she was just sent to an orphan school where she was just kind of had no place yeah so it's a really sad story um and i think too uh it was also hard for the women when they get to tasmania the hardships that they go through in the prison there, they have to pick out oakum, which would have been a terrible thing to do. Some of them would get hired, hired out to be servants or cooks. Um, that was probably better for them. But it also was a chance for them to flourish in a new place because once their time was done, they had freedom in their new country to rebuild their lives. And some of them did that and did it successfully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This book ha- was full of tragedy and hardship. It was, there was so much struggle and pain. Um, but throughout all that struggle and pain and hard work, you could see that they, the people did maintain hope in their bad situations. It wasn't a story of defeat. It was, in the long run, a story of hard work and friendship and sticking together, helping each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, just having hope in the future. And the end of the book does end on a hopeful note, although it was a kind of strange ending, I thought. <laughs> well, it does end on a hopeful note because we see Evangeline's daughter and how she is becoming, she has actually gone back to England to study to become a doctor and how she's become an independent person in this new land. She's going to study in England and her plan is to go back to Tasmania and to be a doctor there and so from the tragedy comes you know this lovely ending in the story of hope for her life right and and the likelihood of her ever moving up in English society is probably pretty slim do you know if this was available electronically? oh yes let me see what I wrote down for that it is available as audiobook and ebook on both Hoopla and Libby okay yeah I think I might have listened to part of it. Okay, let's do our last book. All right. So for my last book is actually a Christian fiction book, and it's The Hidden Prince by Tessa Afshar. And I have read almost everything she's written and really enjoyed them. This one is set in Babylon uh, during the 
Jewish exile to Babylon. And the main character is Karen. And Karen's grandfather was a scribe. And so he has taught her how to be a scribe. And her father has lost money, has money problems. And at that time in the Jewish culture, you could sell yourself as a servant to an, another Jewish person to get money for your family. And so right. that's what Karen's family does. They sell her as a scribe to, actually they sell her as a slave or a servant to uh, Daniel, the biblical Daniel's family. And then Daniel finds out she's no good in the kitchen. She's no good gardening. <laughs> Her only real talent is being a scribe. So she works for Daniel as a scribe. And she also does training, sword training, and participates with his sons in their training and their friend Jared. And then as they grow up, um, there is a tragic accident involving her and uh, Jared, and so she is forced to flee from Babylon to Medina or Media, and she becomes a tutor for this mysterious wild boy, and um, she's training him and finds out his secret. And I think his name was Arta Artadates, and so as she is teaching him. Uh, Jared comes to visit her in media, and they are faced with the challenge of taking this young man and spiriting him away to Persia. So it's about their trip. So there's a lot of history about what the culture was like in Babylon and also in Persia. Uh, like I found out that in Persia... It was very important that you were honest. Honesty was one of their top values in their culture. And there's so little known about Persia and media, so it was really yeah. interesting to read it and uh, see how it fits in the history. There but, was uh, some romance, adventure, um, and just like I said, the history, the biblical history of how things are working out. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. With the Old Testament story. Like you say, mm -hmm. there's not many books that are written on that time period, so that would be mm -hmm. be interesting. So it was really interesting. She does a lot of research in her books, and in fact, on her website, she has some recipes that you can try. That, Did you try any? No. <laughs> <laughs> that that go with the book. And it is available on Libby as an e-book and an e-audio book. And the sequel to this is coming out in the fall. Oh, interesting. So it'll be later a later time period. I think it's um, her and Jared's children in the story. Okay. I have not yeah. heard of that author before, mm -hmm. so I'm definitely going to read one of those books. It yes. sounds, sounds great. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed our talk today, and I hope you heard a book that you would be interested in reading or listening to. Yes. And have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ.